Unusual Suspects with Owen Brennan, a Go Loud original. Now stay tuned for Eddie Murphy in Beverly Hills Cop. Are you ready for Eddie? January 1993, Rochester. There's a fortune in your future at Wegmans. When you make any. Tom O'Connor is at home. He's not answering the door. And he's not answering the phone. Tom was sticking to his story about being kidnapped by the men who stole 7.4 million from the Brinks depot. But the FBI weren't buying it. Tom wasn't under arrest, he was officially just a witness. And they wanted to talk to him about the night of the robbery. But Tom wasn't interested. In the new Rochester telephone directories. They were chasing hundreds of leads. They checked every storage locker rented in Rochester in the months leading up to the heist. They checked who stayed in every motel and hotel in the city in the days around the robbery. They began looking into the local Norade chapter, keeping a close eye on its members and friends of Tom O'Connor. So far, it had all come to nothing. Hundreds of hours and they were still no closer to the missing millions. But there was one lead they hadn't been able to track down. Sam Miller, the former IRA man and a friend of Tom O'Connor's. The man from Belfast who had escaped the FBI once before and was now potentially the key to unlocking the secrets of the case. When Bill Dillon said that it was probably Sam helping on the robbery, we were like, oh boy. And we don't know, at this point, we don't know where Sam went. He left Rochester in a big hurry and we were like, oh Lord. When FBI Special Agent Paul Hawkins talks about Sam Miller, there's a kind of begrudging respect there. And the reason for that is the story of what Sam went through before he arrived in Rochester. Long before he was a suspect in the Brinks heist, back in Belfast, where he grew up. His reputation preceded him just because of the fact of what he had been through. And if that kind of upbringing and experience doesn't toughen you up, I guess nothing would. To understand the story of the Brinks heist and all that followed it, we need to know what came before it. And we need to know Sam Miller's story. Because he is central to all of this. What Sam lived through in Ireland would echo throughout his time in America. And in a lot of ways, it would go on to shape the entire story of the Brinks heist. So now we'll go back to Belfast in the 1960s. Eight years of age, one day I woke up one morning, my mother wasn't there anymore. And as a wee lad, you just wonder where she is. She'd tried to commit suicide a few times, so she'd been in and out of hospital. So I just took it for granted that morning. Well, she's in the hospital, you know. Don't be thinking anything off it. But two or three days had passed, nobody was really talking about her, you know. And I was saying, where's mum, you know, it's okay, she'll be back next week and all this sort of talk, you know. So every day, I used to wait in school, waiting for you know to be there once school finished. I expect her to be outside the gates, taking me home, you know, big smile on her face, and that's it, everything, happy ever after again, you know, but it just didn't work out that way, you know, and then after a while, the realisation just disappeared, you know, and as you get older, your imagination starts working, you know, for you and wondering, you know, why did she leave? What, what did I do to make her leave? Is she alive? You know, and you know, this crap haunts you, you know, it haunts you, like, you know. Sam Miller was born on Lancaster Street in Belfast, a staunchly Republican street. He lived in a home with his siblings, his mother Elizabeth and his father Big Sam. Even as a child, he knew something wasn't quite right in his home. 
but it was only later in life that he would fully appreciate what was happening to his mother. I was the one who always had to go down the off licence for it. I always had to get Hennessy brandy. It was horrible because you had to go down this off license, you know, and it was so embarrassing. Like, you know, you knew something, you just knew something in you as a young boy going on this off license for your mother, you know what I mean? It was just something shameful about it for some reason, you know. And then the way she would hide it in the house, you knew then there was something, this is a secret between you and her. But Elizabeth's drinking isn't the only thing Sam looks back on now as a sign of what she was going through. A pain that he couldn't comprehend at the time, or even for a very long time afterwards. A telltale sign for Sam would be when he found the wallpaper around the house scratched and clawed away by his mother. Of course, you didn't know at the time. You just thought this was some strange habit that you had. But you look back and then you realise that was the start of each depression that's just going through and each new spell of depression, you know. Nobody was helping her, you know, because nobody knew anything about it then. It was just a stigma, you know, that you, that you had mental health, you know what I mean? So sort of way now I feel guilty, you know, at the same time, you know, got mixed emotions, you know what I mean? You know, what, what the hell was I blaming her for, like, you know? When Elizabeth disappeared, Sam was left with a new reality. In the back of my head, she was dead. I eventually had it. She's gone. She's dead. And then I started hating her. You know, I started really hating her, you know, because my father was a seaman. Nine months away at sea. He was a merchant seaman, you know. you never seen him, really. He'd be back home for three months, which was part of the reason her depression started, you know. Lots of reasons for it, but at the time, you don't think about it, you know. So he had to give up a life that he loved, a life that he, that's the only life that he knew, Merchant Seaman, and he had to come home now to look after all these kids. So he had a lot of anger in him, you know. And sometimes that would manifest itself when it maybe gets too much drinking. I mean, when I was youngest in the family, I just seemed to be the one who was targeted by him, you know, as anger, like, you know what I mean? So that made me hate my mother even more, you know, because I'd never seen violence in my father. Never, never once had he struck me, you know. But now it was like common daily, like, you know, it was common regular. I was terrified going home, you know what I mean? Like, you know, I used to have these wee plats in my head, hard to kill them, but without getting caught. Despite growing up in a staunchly Republican and Catholic area of Belfast, Sam's background was complex. My father was Republican socialist, my brothers are socialists, but my grandfather was a, a member of the Orange Order. Very proud orange man, you know. But he was one of the decent orange men, I, I suspect, you know. And he fell in love with a woman from Cork, and she was a Catholic. And all of a sudden, his whole world was upside down, you know. And this fell for this woman very heavy, and he ended up getting married to her. And she, like, told him, my children we're going to have are all going to be Catholics. You know, and there was more in his family that sold him. He was kicked out of the Orange Order. You know, he's, I mean, I think I had a bad life. I'm sure he had a terrible life, you know what I mean, what he must have went through. But there again, there was love doneness, you know what I mean? When he died, like we had his sash on the wall along with JFK and the Pope and the cops when he used to raid our house. I mean, they were so confused. I hadn't a clue what the hell was going on, you know what I mean? They'd come in and look and say, what the hell's that doing? And I'd wrap around the Pope's neck like a big sash, you know? In the late 60s, Sam's Belfast wasn't that complicated. Part of it was youthful ignorance, partly it was a result of the rare circumstances of growing up in a family of mixed religions. He was the kid on the Catholic street with the Protestant surname. Sam couldn't see the cracks growing all around him. He had Protestant aunts, uncles and cousins, and in the summers he would visit them in the staunchly loyalist area of Tigers Bay. And it was there that he had his first youthful romance. You know, one of them things is just summer, you just fall in love with her, she's so beautiful, and you're thinking you're in the swings, you know. But she knew I was a Catholic, you know, and, and it's more or less at the end of it, it's a wee bit more street ways than me, you know, because I think I was very naive at the time going into Tigers Bay, which is quite a dangerous area, you know. And she said, You just have to be careful over here because you're a teague. 
I never heard a word here before in my life, you know, it just sounded so strange, so dirty, you know. If you're not familiar with it, Teg is a derogatory term for a Catholic. Now I remember going home and telling my father, I said, Dad, well, what's a Teg? And he says, Fiestas. Well, where'd you get that? Who'd you hear it from? And I said, oh, it's just with a sweet girl in the park and all, we're having a bit of fun. And she says, you have to be careful, you're coming over here all the time, you're a Teg. And he said, I don't want you ever going back there. You know, and that was the end of it. That was the end of me going back to my cousins and all. You could just see the civil rights is just starting to ferment a bit, you know. And he knew what was happening. Like, he could see what the thing, he just was fearful of me going back there, you know. When you hear Sam speak about those early years, it's clear he really had no idea what was building all around him. The sectarian tensions that would soon explode into war. In Derry, on January 30th, 1972, British paratroopers shot 26 unarmed civilians during a civil rights march. 13 were killed that day, with one more dying later from their injuries. It marked a point of no return for Northern Ireland and for Sam. I, will, I wasn't a Republican at the time. Absolutely no interest. I was more interested in uh, girls, going to discos, going to dances, comics. That was my whole life. My brothers and sisters, my father, all Republicans and socialists. I know my father constantly tell me about the situation in the North. I really didn't care. Then one day, I think my brother was so disgusted with me, you know what I mean, because he was always trying to hammer it into me about, you know, what the way Catholics are living, you know, and the conditions they're living in the North. He said, right, tomorrow we're going to uh, Derry. And of course, that day turned out to be bloody Sunday. It just changed my whole life. We could smell the gas here, all the shooting. I remember being stopped by the cops, the RUC, trying to prevent this gun in because they didn't want any more people joining this big civil rights march, you know. But in the background, you could already hear the shooting and you could smell the gas coming right over into you, know. But I didn't know what this was, this civil rights march. What the hell is this all about, you know what I mean? Like, it's only in the other I sat and thought about it, you know what I mean? All these people murdered for what? You know, trying to be equal in their own place. Sam's life was changing gradually, but rapidly. And then shortly after that, my friend Jim Kerr, there you hear the news about this young Catholic being murdered up on Lisburn Road, shot in the face so many times and chased because he was a Catholic. Jim Kerr, you know, my mate. And I was like, what the hell, you know, what's going on here in my life? And what, what is this, you know? In 1973, police arrested Sam on charges of burning out a bus and an armed holdup of a sweet shop. In court, the judge threw out both of those cases, but he accepted the police claim that Sam had confessed to IRA membership while being questioned. Sam denied he made the confession, and he still says that when he was first sent to prison, he had nothing to do with the IRA. Here I am in front of the judge, Robert Laurie, I'll never ever forget it. For nothing. I'm not in the area, what what the hell is this all about? I'm not in the area, nothing to do with the area, you know? And now judge, he's talking away and he says, you... I can see from this you're a dedicated terrorist. He says, if I had my way, I would give you eight years in jail. Come on, a kid, I'm only a teenager, you know, and he goes, but I'm going to be lenient because of your age, I'm going to give you three years. I was like, my whole world just finished, you know? And all of a sudden, I'm in no case. We lot of just love dancing. I'm in where all these political prisoners. I'm terrified, you know, for nothing, absolutely nothing. And then that day, I remember sitting there, just decided, I'm going to make sure I pay back what they told me, you know what I mean? I guess it was revenge at the time, but 
that's where it was. I thought when I get out, I'm gonna make sure you pay for what you've done to me. Following the introduction of internment without trial, the British authorities began housing internees and IRA prisoners at Long Kesh Prison, about 12 miles from Belfast City. Prisoners lived there in sheet metal huts spread across an old RAF airfield. Clusters of huts were separated by razor-topped barbed wire fencing. Soldiers observed from heavily fortified watchtowers and it looked more like a World War II prisoner of war camp than a modern-day prison. It was home to hundreds of IRA volunteers and it was here that Sam Miller, aged 17, was sent. The first thing you hear is the helicopters, the British helicopters, it never stops. They're flying around all the time, 24 hours, you know, and the dogs are barking and all, and your heart's just stomping, you know, and your heart like, and you're just thinking, what the hell is this place, you know? What the hell's happened to me? What did I do to deserve us, you know? At Long Kesh, there was an uneasy truce between prisoners and prison guards. If the guards kept conditions somewhat reasonable for the prisoners, they wouldn't get too much trouble. But shortly after Sam started his sentence, a new governor arrived at the prison and he implemented a stricter regime. The IRA prisoners decided to retaliate and that led to the infamous Battle of Longkesh. Next thing right, everybody, get prepared. I shaved myself, I mean, fuck, get prepared for what, you know? So we're burning the place down in exactly 20 minutes, every second. Hour later, place is on fire. All flames, you can see it from the whole Belfast, is away in Lisbon. That's for miles away. You can see it all over the whole of the north, you know, all these flames. I thought, but oh, this is it, this is great, you know what I mean? The flames started to burn the whole place down to the ground, really down to the ground, you know. Of course, the next morning, dawn comes, you know, and the next thing you hear is all these terrible sounds. I'll never forget it. These roars. There's like beasts, prehistoric beasts. It's like you're stuck in the jungle and you're surrounded by these, these roars. And you're, I think, what the hell is that, you know? It's just the whole ground starting to vibrate where you are, you know, and you're thinking, what the hell's going on here? And next thing, these big armoured cars come flying in all directions. These British paratroopers and marines. And then the helicopters came flying in right above us, you know? So a lot of it was hand-to-hand combat, you know? People just getting the friggin' sheer crap, you know, and by paratroopers heavily armoured bands and seeds, you know? And then these helicopters above us from the RAF, they started dropping these canisters. It was only later we found out this, this was a new gas that had been used in Vietnam. It was banned by the world. But they started using it on us to see what the effect was, you know? I can tell you now, fuck. It's, it, the gas was incredible. Like, it just makes you hallucinate and a different thing. It burns your skin off you. So the first thing you start doing is you know, your clothes off because you're in fire. You see these flames in front of you. You're believing your, your skin and you're ripping at your skin and everything, you know what I mean? It's horrible. Like, it's like a horror movie. You see the, the mist coming up, all of a sudden it's overtaking you, you know what I mean? Like, and I just started hallucinating. I was getting hit with battens, but I couldn't feel it. I mean, I was bleeding and all. And I remember going from left to right, you're getting hit in the head, getting punched, you know, by different soldiers and all this here. But I was just so really laughing at them. I think I'd aggravated them. You know, they're thinking, oh, you think you're a tough guy? But it wasn't like, I didn't see them. I was seeing cartoon characters. I was seeing like Mickey Mouse and all, or big rubber hammers, you know, and pow, wow. And I was laughing the head off, thinking my comic books have come to life, you know. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't afterwards and then but two days afterwards when we got on the throws in these cages there were no, no, no cages like just wire remember we all had these wee bits of mirror from our thing and I'm looking at my face didn't recognise the beating all swelled up you know all this here teeth and all knocked out the front and all this here and I, I didn't know where to laugh I said what the fuck is wrong with my life you know why is this all this happening to me Sam was released from Longkesh after three years 
the old Sam or the teenage Sam who wanted nothing more from life than going to discos and seeing his friends, he was gone. The Sam who walked back through the door of his childhood home was a different person. He was a fully fledged member of the IRA with a solitary aim in life. He wanted to get his revenge on the British government and military. I say when I got out, I was, I was a different mind. I was like Incredible Hulk. I was like Bruce Banner had changed into this Incredible Hulk because my friends didn't even know me. My whole attitude had changed toward them, you know. I didn't have time for them because they weren't part of the Republican movement. They were the old me. They were still going to discos, having drinks, going out with their girlfriends, you know. And I was sort of like looking down at them or scorn. Just not know what the fuck's going on here. Like, that's the way I used to be till I came out of Long Cash and I changed. This was a different song. And it's the first time I ever stood my father down. Before that, I would never even look him in the eye, you know. And I remember once when I got out, he, was, he said something. So it's, it's a bit of, a couple of years ago, but it sounded okay. But it sounded so ridiculous. Now he's talking to me like this, you know, like as if I'm not a man anymore, like, you know. And I said, Dad, it's over. MTS is gone. This is me. I'm a man now. And this is the way it's going to be. Not the way you tell me it's going to be. This is how it's going to be. And his whole persona changed, you know, his whole features. I think he knew a different person that I come home, you know. You know, I'll admit that, and they know it, when I got out, I was a very, very dangerous man. Within one year of his release, Sam was arrested again. This time, there was no grey area or claims of innocence. I was caught in a car with a hand pistol going to do an operation. So, I was back in jail again. This time, I got 10 years in prison. Sam returned to the site of the same prison he'd been in before, but what waited for him would be very different. Long Kesh prison had been renamed and rebuilt as Her Majesty's Prison Maze, a maximum security prison built solely for housing paramilitaries. The maze was home to eight newly built blocks, all constructed in the shape of the letter H. Each H block was like a prison of its own. Unlike the Long Kesh Sam was in before, where as many as 100 prisoners lived together within their outdoor cage sections, the cells in the H blocks were built to house a single prisoner. The entire prison was designed to give guards total control. Brought me up in the hit blocks. I'll tell you what, it's like watching a hit cat moving. It's like watching Sega with a house on the hill. And you're just thinking, what the hell is that feeling overcomes you of horror? You don't know what's waiting for you, but you know something is waiting. The minute you went in, you just knew you were coming into a new nightmare. You could smell it. It's brand new. like a, a funeral home and all the schools are standing there and they've got their all nice weight all new uniforms everything's brand new the floors all smell a new palace new paint you know I'll never forget them smells it wasn't just the building that had changed the British government had removed the status of political prisoners from IRA detainees categorising them instead as criminals the inmates had responded with protest and some refused to wear prison uniforms those who refused the uniforms were left with nothing but a blanket to cover themselves. I thought my life had been a nightmare in the past. This was a new nightmare that I had never imagined in my life was about to happen. It was called a blanket protest. When Sam arrived at the prison, there was just a handful of prisoners on the blanket protest. Mum would come to me. My nerves were just racking on us and... Uh, Right, Muller, what are you doing standing there with your civilian clothes? You just come from court, you know? Get them off, get that uniform on. I said, 
Not burning. What? Not burning. Why are you not? Door slam my face. You're in a wee cubicle. I'm talking about a cubicle that's built that you have to stand. You can't sit. You have to stand and it's like a coffin. And I'm shaking myself. I think the door opens again. Four or five screws down there. And I was like, oh. Next thing. They all came in. Must be telling me. So they're trying to grab me out. And I'm just standing there as much as I can, squeeze myself in. But they're ripping away at my clothes, you know, ripping up my face, my hair. And finally, they get me out because I'm fighting against unbelievable odds, you know. So they rip all my clothes off, they're all torn off, turning my skin, blood everywhere, you know. And they're beating the shit out of me, and they're just kicking and kicking and kicking, you know. And eventually, get me naked, I'm naked. And they're laughing, you know. And I said, he says, right, up into the van. I says, no, nah, I can't get in any van. He says, you do with me what you want to do. And I'm around, I've got me by the ankles. I started trailing me through this ground, cobblestones everywhere. I'll never forget. Trailing me through it like a chariot, like a Roman chariot, no belly angles. And they're just cutting it. See, the tarmac just stripped into my skin everywhere, my face everywhere, blood everywhere. It just got me, threw me in the back of one of these vans, one of these steel vans, like, you know, I didn't give a shit. I just, you know, my word just finished. And I knew there was no such thing as a God, you know, no God, there's no such thing as God, a lot of bellies. And next thing I just drilled down the car door, dead, dead quiet, you know, all these cells. I don't know if this is a whole place, I'm on my own, you know? What, what's going to happen to me? I'll just steam in the cell. Then opposite, there's nothing in the root in the cell, you know? Next thing, there was a blanket thrown. And it was a blanket. It was like, where, where were these blankets, you know? As a result of their protest, they lost out on the right to have visitors and would often be forced to spend days at a time with their cells stripped of all furniture. Tensions inside the prison rose and it was about 18 months into Sam's sentence when things escalated drastically. So it starts escalating from her and that is really where the start of the protest begins. And that's when the nightmare really begins. I've been a bit of a nightmare prior to it but this is when the real fucking Mr Nightmare walks in, you know, with no books or nothing, no TV, no radio, nothing. When I say we had nothing, I mean, we had nothing. You had a hurry blanket and a thin blanket, that thin, on the ground. When you put it on the ground, when you woke up, it was soaking, the conversation, you know, because these old uh, haste blocks were built on wet RAF fields, you know. So the weather was horrible, and so you're waking up, every night we're soaking wet. Prisoners refused to leave their cells to wash following attacks by prison guards. They instead asked for showers to be placed inside the cells, but this was denied. This inadvertently began what would become known as the no-wash protest, or dirty protest, depending on which side of the divide you were on. With the prisoners unable to slop out and remove their own excrement from the cells, it was left in there with them. With nowhere else to put it, many of the prisoners smeared it on the walls. You think about you're in a speed-tiny cell. It's covering your own shade. Maggots everywhere. Rat food. Stench. The stench is unbelievable. There's nowhere. Because in the summer, in the board that we went to, we tiny window and the board that up, and I put the heat up. And pipes, full blast. The heat's unbelievable, and you're sweating like a pig, you know? There's no air, you can't see it, there's, there's no sky, there's no nothing. Just a big, big, big black window, all boarded up. And you're just terrified, panic, you know? And then in the winter, it's the opposite. All the pipes are turned off, the board's removed, as soon as you're getting a full blast, fucking cold air. Horrendous. And no matter how much I describe to you, you're going, oh, that's shocking. It'll never, you'll never understand it, because you never lived it. My mind was 100% hell. There was nothing could come near it. No matter what anybody does to me, it'll never come near. 
So that's why I don't fear death, because I've already been went through hell. You know, it can't be in our hell that's worse than that, you know? And I kept saying, fuckers are God, he's got some sense of humour. As the situation in the prison deteriorated with the no-wash protest, Sam says the behaviour of some of the guards changed too. Screw's behaviour changes dramatically. Now, don't get me wrong, there was always a few screws who were there just to get a weed. Didn't give a shit. Mostly English screws. They were there, they didn't give a fuck. But the vast majority of Muslim our screws are in the Orange Order, or loyalist oriented. But they had revenge. They, they just took it all personally. Anytime they got a chance to beat the shit out of it, they, they'd done it. And then I started this new invention called Wing Shifts. That was fucking horrendous. Did move you from one wing to the other wing naked. When I got into the circle, beat the shit out of you, turn you upside down, put their fingers in your arse, all this nonsense, knowing that you never had anything. What could you have? You're fucking, you have no contact with anybody. You never ever had anything, but this is just to fucking degrade you, to get away with it, you know? Then meant to put their fingers out of your arse, to poke in your mouth, the same fingers, no gloves, no nothing, you know? Pop you down naked, pop you down right in front of the mirror, look up your arse, and then ram with fingers up it, you know? Every day I was beaten, mentally and physically, sexually, every day. Every day I was waiting for the keys, my heart, waiting just to hear the key single, just to come in, beat the shit out of you, do whatever they're going to do and get away with it. And then they would go home to their nice family and sit down, have a nice meal, calm their, their family, thinking my daddy's the nicest daddy in the world. I love my daddy. He's a great guy. And they'd come in, the same great daddy would come in, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Head. But the worst horror was still to come. The forced washing. People go force washing, it doesn't sound that bad. Well, when you you think you're in a cell and this so-called doctor, certified doctor, is coming around picking out who he thinks is going to go through this torture, you're going to put in a, a nice cold, ice cold bath. So think of Harry, plummet it into an ice cold bath. First of all, hands grappling, you're naked, and the next thing a scrubbing brush is going all over your face. Scrubbing brush now. And big brushes that you use in the yard. Think about that going into your face and you're underwater thinking they're, they're, they're going to drown you because you can get away with anything now. You know that now. You know the screws can kill you. So you're not. You're nothing. You're going to be killed in this bath. That's the thoughts going through your head because they're holding you under and you're just know you're dying. Your whole world, you just see all these things flashing and you know you're thinking dying. Next thing you feel the scrub brush in your face, around your balls, all over you. And then that's not enough. That's not enough. Get them up. Give them a bit of air. And you're screaming like a pig. You give anything just to get that air into your lungs again, get breathing again. You'll, oh God, I'll do anything, just let me breathe now, don't ever do that again to me. Next thing you feel, Ajax. Do you know what Ajax is? It's a scoring powder that people used to clean their sinks with. You're getting that spread over your hair, all over your face, while the cuts of night come, all over your privates, your legs. Scrub the brush again, get them down. Oh, you're very dirty. Back down, clean that off, into this water. You're breathing all that, you're, you're sucking in all this now. You're sucking in the water, you, you just want. You're on the charge of these monsters and they're doing what the fuck they want with And the protests went on year after year. See if somebody had said to me I was going to have to do it for a month I, I, I probably wouldn't have went on. 
I probably was fucking away. And then she said something says a year, I said, Are you fucking crazy? No, no fucking way am I doing that? Never mind seven and a half fucking years. Never will have done. But you take every day as it comes. You tell yourself, well, should you be, you know, are you right or wrong? And that's what you believe in yourself. Will you live with yourself? Will you be able to live with yourself? Down the line? Because that's what I was always brought up. My father used to say, conscience is the ultimate guide. If you can live with yourself, son, he says, that's all you need to worry about. And I used to think, see, if I came off, my father would not be ashamed of me. You know? Let people down, you know? I used to just take each day as I came. Never knew what was coming, you know? I never said, oh, I'm going to be on this for two years, going to be on for two days. I just said, I'm taking each day as it comes. Years later, Sam would write that God didn't send you to hell. He simply granted you memory so that you could torture yourself over and over again for always. You, you try and think of good memories or, or memories that think it make you go home again. And there was times I actually believed it was out coming out of it. And actually being able to see my father in the house but he couldn't hear me, of course. You can only you can only observe. But I used to try and think of a whole film. Now imagine trying to think of a whole film. Now you can always think of wee clips of a film that stick out. So I used to try and say, right, it's going up now, and there's a film, the name's up. So let's start. It's Columbo or whatever, who it may be. Let's remember the first opening. Is that the first are you sure that's the first opening? Think back more. Come on, come on, think back a wee bit more, and then you, something else could be nah, that's the first opening. So you were being lazy. You were just on the jump bar, so you were, you were you were flicking the fucking remote a wee bit, you know? And even if memory occasionally gave Sam a glimmer of warmth in those darkest years, there was no room for dreaming. An out-of-body experience, whether it's going back to your childhood home or unspooling an old film reel in your head, that isn't dreaming. It's just memory, not the future. It's life already past. And for Sam, nothing could be further away than thoughts of a life in America. Dreams of one day living a life free of captivity, maybe somewhere like New York City. The life after prison, any life, even if it was a life that would lead him to being the man chased for the missing $7.4 million from the Brinks heist. That life or anything else was beyond even the reach of dreams in those darkest years. My mother died when I was on the blanket and the priest came into town. Fucking priests, they call themselves priests. But he came in that day, and the only day you ever seen him was when he had bad news. You knew somebody had died, you know. We called him the uh, vulture of death. Next thing I hear him getting coming closer and closer and closer, and then stop outside my cell, you know. I said, Fuck, my dad. Dad's been, you know. Fucking heart started beating, you know. Next thing he walks in the door, and uh, you know, he didn't like because the protest was going on, and there was shit all over the place. It was a fucking horrendous sight, like, you know what I mean? There's fucking maggots everywhere crawling all over the fucking place, you know? He's looking at you, covering fucking shit, and you're naked. He says, oh, Sam, I've uh, some bad news for you. I knew what my dad was dead, you know? He says, uh, your, mo- your mother's dead. What? He says, uh, your mother's dead. He said, my mother? He said, my mother died fucking 30 or 40 years ago. What are you talking about? She said, no, no, she was just fine down in Dublin. Dead. Oh, right. Uh-huh. There you go. Close the door. And, uh, it's all right, I'd sing it. Didn't, didn't affect me. But an hour later, I'd like, screw comes out. She says, right, mother, you're eligible to go out for a compassionate parole to see you go to your mother's funeral. She says, I'll not be a plan for any fucking parole. Yeah. What, what do you mean? You, you get out for... You get out for fucking six hours away from this place. You, you, you know, get yourself out there. I said, nah, I'll take that. 
No. I was just how angry I was toward her. Didn't give a shit. She was just dead, you know. I know you're sitting there saying, fuck, this guy's a monster, you know. But I'm only telling you, I absolutely no feeling whatsoever. I was shattered and hoping it was my father. And once I was relieved once he said, your mother. I don't know that sounds terrible, like, but I was like, oh, thank God, that was my dad. You know? And to go out and be a hypocrite, just what it meant me having to wear a prison uniform, I wasn't going to fucking have you know? I think in my head was, oh, she's watching me to see what I'll do. And I said, no, I'm not going to give you forgiveness. I'm not going to give you, I'm not going to forgive you. I was stupid, like, I know that fucking time's an angry person, like, but I was just thoughts going through in my head, you think I'm going to forgive you? No way. You know, that was it. Over the years, several prisoners left the protest. Sam was one of those who refused to give in. People were saying, like, well, you had a choice. You could have come off a protest. So I said, um, it's right. So you're saying what I should have done was come off a protest, say I'm a criminal, even though I'm a political prisoner, and say England has a right to be in my country, even though they haven't. All injustices, all the murders that they've been involved in and covered up, hundreds of all that's okay. So you want me to come off protest and be part of all that? You can't. This is my country. I'm Irish. British no right to be in here. Who are they to call me a fucking uh, criminal? I could have come off a protest at any time. I went up and made teeth with fucking schools. Well, I lived with myself the rest of my life. Couldn't do that. Certain people did. Certain prisoners did come off a protest. But that's up to them to justify that. But just surprise yourself. You'd be shocked yourself what you could go through. I know you're thinking, oh, fuck, I wouldn't last. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. Almost five years after the blanket protests began, some IRA prisoners started a hunger strike. Ten of them would go on to die. As the hunger strike got underway, the no-wash protest wound down. Sam washed and shaved himself and saw his own reflection for the first time in years. I remember getting my hair cut. The hair was God in it. I mean, it was way down. It was ridiculous. It was like some sort of hippie from California. Like, it was right down to my ankle, you know, just horrible. I felt sort of nostalgia and a wee bit of sadness. My, my hair had been with me, went through all the shit with me. Now I was just getting cut and fucked in the garbage. Like, you know what I mean? I saw I had this wee thing. Fuck, I'll hear being with me all, all, all these years. Like, I know where it's gone now, you know? But it was so heavy. God, in it. It was like a stone set on top of your head, you know what I mean? Like, for about two weeks, it took me to really look in a mirror. I used to look like, look a wee bit about myself in my base part. Um, the next day, look at our part, you know, because you were terrified of what the fuck you were going to see, you know what I mean? So you took it bit by bit, just like a jigsaw puzzle, you know, we bash your face on the last day, I remember, you can't stop this fucking nonsense, just go and bite the bullet, you know, go and look at your fucking self, you know? And fuck, it was, like it was sort of mixed, it was hard because it changed, my features and everything, it changed, I got so old, like, you know what I mean, like sort of thing, like, it's just not, fuck. What happened that way, lad, you know? Although the blanket protest was effectively over, there was a small core, including Sam, who refused to give up their protest entirely. They would wear their own clothes, but they would not agree to the demand that they undertake prison work. By sticking to this, they gave up any hope of early release. After all he had endured to that point, Sam decided he wasn't going to abandon his fight. He could have come off his protest and been out of the prison in three months. He accepted a further two and a half years on his sentence as the cost of seeking to what he believed was right. And I'll never forget going out to the gates with my daddy. Hadn't, hadn't seen him 
and uh, eight and a half years, you know. He went home carrying the weight of those years with him. You're in a place called home, but you're, you'll never go home again because your mind is so fucked up of what you went through. And it was only later that I started talking or writing about it in my book. People came to me, wives, who split up with their husbands, sons and, and, uh, sons and daughters, because when their fathers got out of his blocks, they weren't the same people. They were wrecked. And these, their families didn't know what the hell was happening because being a man, you didn't talk about it. You didn't talk about being sexually, oh, you know, assaulted, beat up every day, mentally degraded. You never talked about them. And so these waves, until they read my book, it was a revelation to And I'll never forget the day the book came out, days later, people come to my house, waves. Axe waves, really, because they split up with their husbands. And uh, sons, daughters, crying, you know. And they were saying, like, Sam, only until we read what they went through did we understand my daddy. You know. Sorry, I get emotional about this here, no? It was just seeing these kids who couldn't understand why their father no longer wanted to be with them. You know, they thought something that they had done, just like I thought when my mother went, you know. Because everybody was changed. Nobody was the same when they came out of hits blocks. The Troubles and the IRA campaign were still raging in Belfast and across Northern Ireland when Sam left prison. And he fully intended to return to that fight until life took its own course. I'm out a couple of days from the Haste Blacks, but I reported back for active service in the IRA, even though it's only had a couple of days. Usually it give you a couple of weeks to get, get yourself to guard. So one day I was going up the New Lloyds Road past the Fennel Club, which is a Republican club for prisoners and their families and things like this here. It's a very famous place. And my father was in charge of security at the time. And I was just walking up, and the next thing he was talking to someone, he waved me over, and I, I was sort of like going to just wave at him and walk past my father because I was scared he was going to start asking me to talk to somebody about what went on in the hate blocks because I didn't want to talk about the hate blocks at the time. It was the last thing on my mind. But I went over out of respect for him, and I sat down. He just said, hold on a wee minute. I'll bet in a couple of minutes somebody wants to talk to you. A couple of minutes passed, and this young girl came out, and she says to me, do you want to talk to me? To me, and I said, sorry, don't know I I don't even know who you are. So, oh, your daddy told me you're waiting for me out here. So I started cursing my daddy inside me, and I said, what the hell's he up to, you know? We just got talking. So we agreed to meet the next day, even though in the back of my head I was really going to go to meet another ARA man about something. But the more I, when I went home, I kept, couldn't get this wee girl out of my head, you know, for some strange reason. And then the next day we met, we went for a drink, sat, talked to each other, and lo and behold, I didn't realise it, but I was falling in love for the first time in my life. You know, it just overcame me, it overwhelmed me. Everything stopped to exist there, I, whom I loved to give my life to. I didn't care anymore. 
I didn't care about anybody, my friends, my family. All, all of a sudden, all I cared about was this young girl being with her, being in her presence, just watching her talk to me, you know, being with her. The next chapter in Sam's life begins just a few months after leaving prison, when he answered the door to the postman one morning. She hands me a letter it's from New York. I don't think nothing of it. Close the door, and then I open up a letter. And I can't believe it, the one from New York is from, from a mate. And then said it's $1,000. And I almost faint. I, I mean, I've never had that fucking much money in my life. I've always been skint. Never had a penny in my pocket. And it just says, no from me. They all gathered the money together. They want me to come over. Buy a ticket. That's the money. Get yourself over and bring Bernie with you. There's enough fur for both of us. And they kept sending me a letter saying, come on, son, come on over to New York. Get yourself a life. Come on, you're with you. Enough bullshit over there. And now this part of our story circles back to the US and back to the Brinks heist. After he had left prison, Sam met an American in Belfast, a man who had come over to see firsthand what life in the city was like. He was a proud Irish American. He was a man with great reverence for the men of the IRA. He was Tom O'Connor, the same man who would one day be suspected of the Brinks heist and would lead the FBI to begin their search for Sam. He was over with... uh... Irish sympathisers in Belfast, Noriad, knew an awful lot about Aaron, very passionate about it, you know, not one of these like Mickey Mouse, sort of Irish Americans talking bullshit about leprechauns and all this guy knew his stuff, he knew the politics, he knew about British oppression, occupying the country, shouldn't be here, you know. So when I got that money, you know, I'm thinking, well, how the fuck am I going to get into America? You know, it's it's, it's, it's an ordeal here, you know. Next thing Colin Connor says, don't worry about it, you're in, I'll get you in. To sneak Sam into America, Tom hatched a plan. Sam would travel to Canada and from there travel to the Canadian side of Lake Ontario. From there they would reach a group of islands that straddled the border. Some are in Canada, some in the US. Once they were safely on an island in American territory, they could make their trip to the shore and on to Rochester. Tom and I was in this little rowboat from Canada and I said, oh, you're going to love this, you're going to love this place and you're going to love America, you know? And he kept rowing and rowing. We got these islands, you know? He says, right, so I'll be back. Don't panic. You'll see patrol boats go up and down. Fucking man, they hear that. Of course I panic, you know. And I say, well, right, right. He says, just head in the bushes there and you'll see me coming along. I'll be coming along on a wee speedboat. So I'm going in among these bushes. It was summer, I'll never forget. I got eight alive by mosquitoes. Fucking hell, is it worth it? You know what I mean? And I've seen this couple of these patrol boats going up and down. Fucking hell, this isn't going to work. I'm going to be caught here. Alex going to be in a prison in America, you know what I mean, for entering the country illegally and all this here. Next thing I've seen Tom's people coming. Gives me a nod. You get on it. And five minutes later, we're in America. And I'll never forget it because I'm soaking wet. I have to get out of the wee boat to go to get reach dry land, you know. So I don't give a shit. I just want to get out of this boat and get my feet on dry land, you know. So I get out. The, the water's still up to my waist, covered in all sorts of muck. And Tom goes and parks a boat where I sit in the shore and uh, right in front of us is this big diner big American diner you, know, you see him in the movies now. it's the first time I'm amazed at it it's a massive big thing you know so he says are you hungry so I says yeah I'm hungry enough you know and we walk in the diner I'm still soaking my clothes is all wet he says what What? What do you want I said oh, just a sandwich and that was a big mistake because Americans they don't do sandwiches they do these big fucking tables you know and that's your respected eat you know in Belfast it's a wee triangle like, you know what I mean I says oh, just, a, just a sandwich and he sat it down in front of me, almost fainted, you know, the size of it, you know. We, we bought a beer along, we just said, welcome to America, mate, you know. And that was the start of it, my journey into America, you know. So Tom was a guy brought me in, like, you know, a real good guy. He says, now you're in America, sorry, the land of freedom and all this, you know. And he was right, because 
And I understand now what it is, the, the word freedom means. It's like this big thing has been lifted off my chest and I'm, I'm really starting to feel freedom. I sit there for a while, it's like a train has just hit me. I'm thinking, this is what freedom means. All my life I've been oppressed and now I'm here and I'm free. And it's just, a, I feel like crying, it's just so overwhelming, you know, I know it sounds corny, but I just have this overwhelming feeling of freedom. Next on Unusual Suspects, the FBI search for Sam Miller in New York City. And that was like trying to look for a needle in a haystack. A major surveillance operation begins. I'm looking across the street and I see this gentleman that's fit the description of Millar. So one of our agents took a picture of Sam. And the story of the Brinks heist takes a very strange turn. He was into the really old comic books, what they called Silver Age, Golden Age... He obviously had quite a bit of money to spend on really expensive comic books. As I remember as a young boy, telling my dad, Dad, you know, one day I'm going to go to New York. I'm going to go and live in Queens because that's where Spider-Man lives, Peter Parker. And then another. You know, all of a sudden, this Catholic priest shows up and we're like, who the hell is this guy? Father Pat Maloney, the one and only. Unusual Suspects is produced and presented by me, Owen Brennan. Sound production is by Lachlan Hart. Siobhan Walsh was production assistant. Unusual Suspects is a Go Loud original.